NPR. This is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. So far this hurricane season, the levee systems and eroded coastal wetlands of New Orleans and southern Louisiana have yet to face the challenge of another Katrina. But as the government and some residents race to rebuild a year after the massive flooding disaster, there are still questions about the best ways to make sure the levees don't fail again. Yet out of the devastation, there's a new determination that answers will be found. There's a part of me, I guess, that stopped stopped uh, living on August 29th, and there's another part that uh, that is still here. The part that's still here is the part that knows that we can change it, that we can make this make this community sustainable, that we can do it right. Uh, Daggummit, we're going to do it. Storm protection, past, present, and future. This week on Living on Earth, stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. This is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood in New Orleans. Please don't stay. I'm from New Orleans. Just a prayer for New Orleans. Just a prayer for New Orleans. It's been a year since Hurricane Katrina rolled through New Orleans. But in many parts of the city, you wouldn't know a year has passed. A year later, the high water marks still stain block after block of damaged homes. A year later, the deficient flood walls are still under repair. A year later, and it's almost as if time has stood still. For Mississippi and Alabama, Katrina was a historic natural disaster, a massive Category 5 hurricane that obliterated the coast. But for New Orleans, it was a man-made catastrophe. By the time the storm reached here, the winds and surge had weakened to within the design criteria of the levees meant to protect the city. Yet those levees failed on August 29th in the largest civil engineering disaster in American history. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has admitted fault and is wrestling to correct its mistakes, but serious concerns remain. In our program today, we'll explore how New Orleans got its faulty storm protection system, and we'll hear some ideas for a better future. We start with what went wrong with the levees and how they can be fixed, and how the folks rebuilding in New Orleans are taking their own steps to protect their homes. Living on Earth's Jeff Young begins our report. New Orleans lawyer Jim Cobb tucks a six-pack of beer under each arm as he checks on his house. The sound of construction is a rare sign of progress in the neighborhood. We have floors, we have walls, and we have paint on the walls. That probably puts us ahead of about 99% of the folks in Lakeview. The beer is for his workers. With demand for labor so high, he wants to keep them happy. He could use a beer himself. Cobb has the look of someone who's seen too much and slept too little lately. But what he sees now looks pretty good. The mold and the urine-colored stain of high water are gone. Cabinets are going in the kitchen. The house is almost ready for his family of four to return. We've been here for 10 years. Very happy until August 29th, 2005 at about 10.35 a.m. And been unhappy since. That, of course, was when Hurricane Katrina showed New Orleans just how vulnerable it was. This neighborhood flooded when the eastern levee on the drainage canal along 17th Street failed. 
Cobb says the past year brought a lot of frustration and pain and little in the way of planning, leadership or financial assistance. He's eager to get back home, even if it's to one he hardly recognizes. There's no place to eat. There's no grocery stores. There's no uh, pharmacy. I mean, uh, we've been failed by every single level of government for so long that as a citizen, you don't believe anything any of them say. Those of us who are left have pretty much decided we're going to do it on our own. And just give me gas and water and electricity and I'll see you later. What's your feeling toward the Army Corps of Engineers now? I mean, your home was resting behind these levees that you obviously had some faith in or you wouldn't have made the investment in this house here. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the Army Corps? Um, That I can say on the radio is uh, nothing good. Nothing good. Well, here you are rebuilding. You're essentially trusting them to protect you this time around. What's different? What's different is is that they should be and they ought to be horribly humiliated for what they let happen here. And I'm hopeful that they will not let it happen again. The last remnants of homes are still being demolished along the 17th Street Canal, where the levee failed. Steel pilings block the football field-sized hole in the floodwall and levee. Nearby, the canal empties into Lake Pontchartrain. That's where the Army Corps is still at work on a dramatic feat of emergency engineering. Yeah, what you see in, in the farthest distance is a, what appears to be a big black wall. Uh, those are the, the, uh, the gates. Um, and when they're closed, they will prevent the water from coming into the canal. Dan Hitchings heads the Corps' task force HOPE. Hitchings says Corps and other engineering teams investigating what went wrong here found a weak layer of soil beneath the levee and flood walls lining the canal. Long before water went over its top, a huge section slid away underneath, like a brick on top of jello, one engineer put it. No amount of work could make the canal walls withstand another storm surge, so the surge must be kept out. We're fearful that if the lake level rose to the point that it would in a severe storm, uh, that it would threaten those walls. So those gates will close and will just keep the water out. The problem that that creates is that when the gates are closed, they can't run the pumps to pump the water out of the city. Because so much of New Orleans is below sea level, rainwater must be pumped out. So just to the sides of the new gates, the Corps is installing more pumps and five-foot diameter pipes. In a storm, the closed gates would keep surge from entering while the pumps and pipes would let rainwater exit. There are nagging concerns about the pumping capacity. But Hitchings is confident this mix of gates and pumps will keep the city's drainage canals from causing more catastrophic flooding. Other levees are being armored with rock or concrete to keep them from eroding if water spills over the top. But there are other problems to deal with. A recent study in the journal Nature showed the land under the entire region is subsiding at a much faster rate than thought. That means many levees are much lower than they should be. So we've got 36 miles of flood walls um, that over the next two years we'll be replacing and building a a stronger flood wall in their place so provide a higher level of protection uh, than what they currently have. 
Yeah, if we had a, an, an exact repeat of Katrina, probably you would see levees over top. We wouldn't have the failures that occurred along these outfall canals. The result would be you'd end up with about one-third as much water in this part of the city as you did during Katrina. So it's still going to put a lot of water in, even if the levees uh, did not uh, erode away. Jeff, come on in. Casey and Kathy King used to have a house right against one of the levees along the London Avenue Canal. The levee failed just eight doors down from them. Now they have a vacant lot with a FEMA trailer and an RV parked on it. She misses her house. She misses the house. The Kings are among the few people on their quiet tree-lined drive to rebuild. This time, they're building higher. Yeah, we look at our neighbors' houses, uh, and, and the water line is about eight feet. So we figure eight feet plus a foot. So that, that ought to be adequate. The government now requires that homes here be three feet above ground level, and there's money to help pay for that construction. But here's the catch. If you want to go higher, as the Kings do, you have to pay for that extra work yourself. The King says it's worth it because he does not trust the Corps of Engineers. Uh, there is no evidence they have learned and, and, and are taking that knowledge and putting it back into reforming the organization, the institution itself. Because uh, that's what produced it. It wasn't, it wasn't some you know, disembodied bad decision. It was an institution behaving badly. King's not the only one who'd like to see the Corps make some changes. University of California at Berkeley engineering professor Bob B. was part of a team funded by the National Science Foundation to investigate the levee failures. B. has praise for the Corps' work since the storm, but scathing criticism for the work that led up to it. The Corps is doing, I think, a heroic job to make these intermediate repairs. But if you don't fix the organizational system that's responsible for designing, constructing, operating, and maintaining that, uh, you're not going to win the battle with uh, nature. B brings a unique perspective to both the Corps and the city. He worked for the Corps, as did his father. And B lived in New Orleans in 1965 when Hurricane Betsy destroyed his home. I looked at this problem, I think, very, very differently than many of my colleagues and could see very deeply into the eyes of those people that lost so much. I was able to pretty well see what had been going on with my old family, the Corps of Engineers, that kept uh, reminding me of how a good family can turn out to not be what we really want. In short, B found his old family, the Corps, had become dysfunctional. He recommends more independent review and oversight of core projects and major changes in the way the core interacts with Congress, local government sponsors, and industry to set priorities. Major General Don Riley is head of civil engineering for the Army Corps. Riley agrees with most of the technical aspects of B's report on levee failures. Those failed prior to reaching uh, their design height of protection. So there's four engineering failures in particular uh, that we're highly concerned about. We are certainly accountable for those uh, failures. What does that mean exactly when you say we're accountable? Have people been uh, fired, demoted, reprimanded in any way? Uh, no, they haven't. Now, what it means is that we're accountable is we're going to go back and we look at all of the investigative work that, uh, that we've been doing. Uh, those reports will come out uh, pretty soon. There, there'll be uh, 
there'll be a lot of a uh, lot more questions asked and and certainly a lot of improvement made in across the board in all the systems. Riley says he supports more independent review of core work, but he's less enthusiastic about other recommended changes, saying he sees no need to change the way the core works with Congress. In the Upper Ninth Ward of New Orleans, Habitat for Humanity volunteers are working to build not just new homes, but a new neighborhood. They call it the Musician's Village, and Michael Harris will be among its first residents. Harris is a New Orleans native who plays bass and sings. His home in the Lower Ninth Ward was destroyed in Katrina, and he hopes this home will bring back some of the creativity and sense of community he enjoyed before. I think this is going to be one of, one of the many incubators of our culture and our heritage and tradition. This program is the answer to all of my prayers in so many ways, on so many levels. Harris will live in one of the project's colorful, cozy homes with his teenage son. He's clearly excited about the new neighborhood, but he's uneasy about the Corps' levees and flood walls that must protect it. <sighs> if I go just by the track record, then it doesn't look good. So will it flood again? We have the technology to prevent it. We have the technology. That's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. Will it be applied? That remains to be seen. Coming up, Jeff Young looks at the history and engineering decisions made long ago that led to the failure of the levees to protect New Orleans. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. By now, it's clear that Hurricane Katrina did not drown New Orleans by herself. The city flooded because its levees and flood walls failed in the face of a challenge they should have contained. Those walls against the water were tangible expressions of a community's trust. People trusted their homes, belongings, their very lives to a hurricane protection system that was 40 years in the making and then undone in a day. Living on Earth's Jeff Young continues his report now with a look at how that flawed levee system came about. It's a history full of skewed priorities, political squabbles, and unintended consequences for a river, the land it built, and the people who live on it. The Mississippi River built New Orleans. From sternwheelers like this one to today's ocean-going vessels, commerce on the river made New Orleans one of the country's busiest ports. But the river built this city in a more literal sense. It actually made all this land. Oh yeah, the whole of southeast Louisiana was built by the river. Wetlands ecologist Denise Reed sits by the river across town from where she teaches at the University of New Orleans. Reed explains how, for millennia, the Mississippi picked up sediment from its enormous drainage and left it here. About every thousand years or so, we think, the river has built land in one area and then another area and then another area. And uh, by the time we stopped it doing that, it was going down the location that it does presently does through the city of New Orleans. And so we've locked it in position now. It doesn't swing around the coast like a hosepipe building land. When we did that, when we contained the river and tamed it within the levees, there were some unintended consequences. River Delta land is soft and loose and compacts over time. Without more sediment from river floods, the land sinks. And in the past 60 years or so, the marshes have been carved up with canals, thousands of them, for navigation and for the many oil and gas wells and pipelines. 
That lets salt water from the Gulf of Mexico rush in, killing freshwater marsh. What it means is that we're sitting on the delta of the sixth largest river in the world, and it's in fundamental decline. Much of the marsh and wetland that we have lost during the 20th century is difficult to envisage how we could get that back. The system is so seriously deteriorated. Uh, some parts of the coast are just not there anymore. The city sank and the coast shrank. In an average year, Louisiana loses 24 square miles to open water. By 2050, it could lose another 500. That land sheltered migrating birds and one of the country's richest fisheries. It was also South Louisiana's buffer against storms raging in from the Gulf of Mexico. But then people had a pretty good reason to build levees along the river. 1927 brought havoc to Mississippi as torrents of water poured through the lowland states from Illinois to the Gulf. The river was this enormous force. You know, that flood hit the homes of nearly 1% of the entire population of the country. Historian and New Orleanian John Barry. His book, Rising Tide, tells how the Great Flood of 1927 changed the region and its relationship with the river. They strengthened the levees significantly after the 27 flood. They have not had a major flood break those levees since 1927. Controlling the Mississippi became the top job for the Army Corps of Engineers. University of Maryland engineering professor and retired General Gerald Galloway knows how big a job that was. He served 38 years in the Corps. The Mississippi was the big tiger that they were wrestling with. That's the front door to New Orleans. The back door was the coastal protection from hurricanes. In 1965, Hurricane Betsy alerted everybody to the fact that you could put New Orleans underwater from the back door. Is your home underwater? Oh, yes, it was in the water. About three feet to the house. What's happened to your neighbors? They're the same way, sir. They're the same way. President Lyndon Johnson comforted storm survivors just after Hurricane Betsy took that back door into the city. Water roared up an inland bay called Lake Bourne. From there, it spilled into the city's east via a canal just completed that year called the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet. Water also swamped the city's north from Lake Pontchartrain. Johnson pledged federal help. This state will build its way out of its sorrow, and the national government will be at Louisiana's side to help it every step of the way in every way that we can. Hurricane Betsy spurred Congress to fund the first Army Corps plan to protect New Orleans from storms. That started 40 years of work on the 125-mile levee system, a system still not finished today. The original plan also called for more, a large storm surge barrier. When open, it would allow boats and normal tidal flow between Lakes Bourne and Pontchartrain. When closed, it would keep storm waters from surging into Pontchartrain and the city's north. But that plan ran into a different kind of storm. Again, Gerald Galloway. From the very beginning, the construction of the hurricane protection system around New Orleans was, was fraught with lots of challenges. The first was a lawsuit challenging the surge barrier. Communities on the lake's north shore worried it would put them in greater danger. And environmentalists argued it would damage the lake ecosystem. A federal judge agreed and sent the surge barrier back to the drawing board in the 70s. Vald Heiberg was district chief of the Corps at the time. 
We, the Corps of Engineers, never got beyond that point. I ended up being the head of the Corps and was the guy uh, a decade later that said, okay, we're going to just quit trying. We'll just try to build those levees in New Orleans higher. I don't know if that was the right idea. And as I've told some people, that might, might have been the worst thing I ever did as Chief of Engineers. After Katrina, the idea of surge barriers is back and still controversial. A recent report from the Government Accountability Office says it's likely Katrina's surge would have overtopped the barrier as it was originally designed. That could have made flooding even worse because the original plan called for lower levees around the city. But Heiberg and other former high-ranking Corps members insist New Orleans needs a surge barrier. They say a new design coupled with higher levees could protect against storms without harming the environment. In any event, when the surge barrier plan died in the 70s, the Corps had to rethink its protection for New Orleans. They shifted focus to the city itself and three major weak points. The canals that carry rainwater out to the lake could also let storm surge into the very heart of the city. You know, when you take on your enemy, you generally don't want to invite the enemy into your living room for the battle. And that's essentially what happened. Historian John Barry says the Corps proposed decades ago to put gates where each canal meets the lake, so canals made to drain out didn't instead allow lake water in, very much like the ones they're racing to build today. But politics intervened. The local politicians uh, ordered the Corps through legislation not to do that because they felt it was too expensive. They didn't want to pay their share. With no surge barrier on the lake and no gates on the canals, the only plan left was to simply line the canals with higher levees and walls. Levees and walls that fell when Katrina took the same back door to New Orleans that Betsy found open 40 years before. Barry says there's plenty of blame to go around, but he places most of it squarely on the Army Corps. When the Corps looks at itself in the mirror, I think there are some real problems there. There were many compromises that the Corps made. A lot of those compromises, you know, were forced upon it, but not all of them. And, uh, yeah, I'm pretty disappointed in the work they did. Of course, that levy work is now the focus of intense scrutiny. But retired Corps General Gerald Galloway says the problems really started before the work began. I would argue that the problem began when we failed to specify the level of protection to be provided. All along, the core plan to protect New Orleans was based on a late 50s study by the Weather Service, guessing the strength of storms most likely to hit. It was called the Standard Project Hurricane. When we picked the Standard Project Hurricane for New Orleans, we were picking low, not high. We went in the wrong direction. Instead of taking the biggest storm that we could conjure, we took uh, sort of a moderate storm, and as we've seen, the results were uh, disastrous. The Corps upgraded its storm calculations with a study in the late 70s. Louisiana State University Hurricane Center Director Ivor Van Herden says the Army even issued a directive in 1981 to use those new findings and design protection for a stronger storm. Unfortunately, the Corps seemed to have stayed with the 1959 definition of a standard project hurricane, which was a much, much weaker storm. They paid for this study. Uh, why didn't they use it? We see cost-cutting efforts one after the other, and we see this term in their internal correspondence about this will cut costs, this will cut costs. So it looks like perhaps that the use of a weaker hurricane meant that you didn't have to build the levees as robust or as high, and as a result you, you cut your costs. 
So was the problem a shortage of money? The storm protection system was still not complete when Katrina hit, and the Bush administration had cut maintenance budgets for levees. But still, Louisiana got more money for core projects over the past five years than any other state, nearly $2 billion. Steve Ellis is with the budget watchdog group Taxpayers for Common Sense. So it wasn't that we didn't spend enough money. It was going to the wrong things. Rather than concentrating our resources in maintaining what we had and trying to actually provide adequate or better flood protection, we were building other things across the state. Ellis says core projects too often waste money and hurt the environment. The core says it's changed to make restoration a major part of its mission. Two core projects just a few miles apart provide evidence for both arguments the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, and the Carnarvon Diversion. So I'm walking along the Mississippi River levee downstream of New Orleans at a big bend in the river called the English Turn in St. Bernard's Parish. A little community here is called Carnarvon. Now, Carnarvon is locally infamous in history because in 1927, during the Great Flood, the powers that be that ran New Orleans dynamited the levee right here. Well, it's one of those funny coincidences of history that if you visit Carnarvon these days, you'll find there's another intentional hole in the levee. Listen, you can hear some of the Mississippi River rushing through the levee. Well, this time, the goal is to use that water to save some of the disappearing wetlands. This is right near the spot where the levee was blown up, and so we're trying to replicate that, albeit in a, in a much smaller way. Biologist Chuck Villarubia manages the Carnarvon Freshwater Diversion for Louisiana's Department of Natural Resources. It's an Army Corps project that the state now operates. And what we have is a series of five tubes that are 15 by 15 feet that then distributes the water from the river into the marsh. And what this does is help simulate the overbank flooding that happened before the levees were here. And uh, so are we going to open the gates here? Yeah, we can open the gates and, and, and show you how it works. With the gates fully open, 8,000 cubic feet per second of muddy Mississippi rush through. In some parts of the country, that would be a river in itself, but it's spare change here. The river water pushes back salt water from some abandoned fields. Now the marsh is starting to come back, as is wildlife. Is that, yeah, that's him right now. There's an alligator. Uh, it's like a halfway de decent sized one that's uh, kind of checking us out a little bit. The concern about losing wetlands and the land itself is so great, it must be really satisfying to be able to come out here and say, we're, we're starting to turn the tide here at least a little bit. Carnarvon, I think, has been successful. It's been nice to see it work. And particularly now after the hurricane, we've seen that uh, we need to have this, and we've known that we need to have this marsh in front of these levees to make them more effective. Uh, most of the levees look fine there, at least in this area. So um, we need to make the, uh, this wetland restoration work along with the levees for the protection of the whole area. But any excitement over the success of this small project is tempered by hard lessons from its history. The Corps proposed this diversion in the 60s, but didn't get it built until the 90s. Once built, it was nearly derailed by a billion-dollar lawsuit from oystermen, who claimed the incoming freshwater damaged oyster beds. And while the Corps spent $26 million at Carnarvon to help repair wetlands, it spent many times that on another project which destroys wetlands, the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet. The Gulf Outlet, in my opinion, has been a cancer 
That's Carlton Dufresho, a native of New Orleans and an engineer who once worked for the Army Corps. He now heads the Lake Pontchartrain Foundation, a conservation group that wants the Corps to close the Gulf outlet, known locally as the MRGO, or Mr. Go. The 76-mile MRGO was meant as a shortcut for ships traveling to the Gulf, but it never got the ship traffic planners projected. Critics like Dufresho say it has instead been a straight shot for storm surges to plow into the city. And it's also killing off the coast. It bisected the coast, so it was a shortcut for salt water from the, the higher salinity waters of the Gulf into the historically brackish and sometimes fresh waters of the upper reaches of closer to New Orleans, eating away at our natural lines of defense down there day in and day out. Dufresho says the best way to see all this is from the air. Clear prop. Conveniently, he's also a pilot. Lock is running. And here we go. When the Corps first dug the MRGO, it was about 700 feet at its widest. But the soft banks eroded with each dredging and salt water intruded. Over the decades, it spread to more than 2,000 feet wide, destroying at least 27,000 acres of wetlands. Okay. The channel right there, that's Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, and you can get an appreciation of how much it is uh, opened up. The levee. To the south of the MRGO, we see the many repair jobs where the channel's levee breached during Katrina, wiping out communities in St. Bernard Parish. To its north, what's left of the marshland looks to be melting away into Lake Bourne. Dufresho points to an odd rectangle of stone in the shining water. Right down here, that thing in the water used to be a fort. There used to be land around it. There used to be land that you could walk to. Wow. Well, have to take a boat to. The fort's thick rock walls protected it since before the Civil War. But walls were no match for rising water and sinking land. It's like looking at a possible future New Orleans, a walled island naked against the advancing water. This is the first line of defense. Without the coast, we can build levees that can be as, as high as pyramids, and we're just setting ourselves up for failure. For Dufresho, Show, the MRGO sums up all that is wrong with the way local officials, Congress, and the Army Corps have engineered this coast. He sees misplaced priorities and little coordination of projects for navigation and storm protection. And he sees a damaging channel kept open year after year using up tens of millions of dollars that could have gone toward protecting the city and restoring the coast. I guess that is what, more than anything else, what is so frustrating about this. It could have been prevented. And it, when, you know, when, you know, when you know there's a problem out there and you keep running up against a wall and running up against a wall and running up against a wall, and you're using science and telling people, look, here are the facts, telling decision makers, if we don't change this system, we're setting ourselves up for disaster. And the disaster finally comes, and, and frankly, it's still a bit surreal. It, uh, uh, still not easy to talk about this, huh? It's, there's a part of me, I guess, that stopped stopped uh, living on August 29th, and there's another part that, uh, that is still here. The part that's still here is the part that knows that we can change it, that we can make this, make this community sustainable, that we can do it right. Uh, and daggum it, we're going to do it. Emotion still rides just under the surface here. A conversation can veer from hope to despair and back again. 
the storm made the mistakes of the past painfully clear, but it also strengthened those who would correct them. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in New Orleans. Just ahead, we meet some folks with big ideas about how to protect New Orleans and southern Louisiana from future storms. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, online at MOTT.org, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. The Kresge Foundation, investing in nonprofits to help them catalyze growth, connect to stakeholders, and challenge greater support. On the web at Kresge.org. And the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in children, their families, and their communities. On the web at WKKF.org. This is NPR National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood in New Orleans. Here at the 17th Street Canal, where a year ago raging storm waters broke through the levee and ravaged a neighborhood, the Army Corps of Engineers is putting the finishing touches on repairs to the seawalls that failed during Hurricane Katrina. The Corps says the levees will hold, but for how long? Levees are the last of three lines of defense against storms. Along the Louisiana coast, sinking land, rising sea levels, and navigational canals are combining to drown barrier islands and turn marshland into open water. Every year, 24 square miles are lost. Since 1932, a landmass the size of Delaware has disappeared. And unless and until Louisiana's coastline is restored, many scientists say New Orleans will remain as vulnerable as it was before Katrina. The barrier islands protect the wetlands. The wetlands protect the levees. The levees protect the hope. Ivor Van Heerden is deputy director of the LSU Hurricane Center and author of the new book, The Storm, What Went Wrong and Why During Hurricane Katrina. He hails from South Africa and brings with him international expertise on coastal restoration, along with the perspective of an outsider not so mired in local politics and turf wars. In the cockpit of his sailboat, the Magnum, Van Heerden quickly lays out the foundation of what it would take to rebuild the Gulf Coast in a comprehensive way that would ensure its protection. Well, the rough outline of such a plan would be a levee system that crosses coastal Louisiana about uh, 20 to 30 miles inland from the present shoreline that would incorporate most of the settled areas, most of the urban areas, and it would consist of a large levee system with a lot of gates, floodgates for navigation and for these river diversions to get the sediment out. It would be located such that it already has an existing platform of wetlands that we can be restoring or aiding in their, in their growth. And then it would require building these barrier islands somewhat closer inland than they are at the present time. Why are wetlands important for protection against hurricanes in New Orleans? What we know is that a wetland reduces uh, the storm surge because of the frictional effects as the surge moves through it. This is especially true when the surge is going through a cypress swamp because now you have trees that are at least 60 feet high, very well rooted, very well packed. So you imagine trying to push 
that water uh, through that forest, it slows down dramatically. The second thing is, as a hurricane approaches the coast, the right-hand side, the winds are blowing to the shore. The left-hand side, the winds are blowing out to sea. And so on the left-hand side, you actually lower the water level. So the plants and the levees and the barrier islands stick up into the wind field. And as a consequence, they take some of the energy out of the wind field. So the wetlands have two very important roles to play. Basic science, why did these wetlands go away? The, the reason we've lost as many wetlands as we have reflects the fact that we've cut off the sediment supply from the Mississippi River because of the artificial levees. All that sediment now goes into Gulf waters about 400 foot deep. And in addition, we've crisscrossed all the wetlands with numerous canals and channels, some for navigation, some for oil and gas, and they've totally disrupted the natural function of many of those wetlands. How difficult is it to engineer the coastal restoration and, and uh, the build-up of barrier islands? In terms of the barrier islands, all you need to do is move the sand from offshore about 11 miles and then you can build up your barrier islands. There are many, many different systems. We've perfected beach restoration in the United States. It's exactly the same uh, technique. In terms of the wetlands, we know from uh, other examples we have in the central part of the coast that if you can just get the Mississippi water to the wetlands you'll build little deltas, you'll rebuild the wetlands and the whole area will reju rejuvenate. Okay, so practically speaking, how does one engineer the buildup of the islands and the wetlands needed to recreate storm protection? There are a couple of key engineering challenges to restore Louisiana's coastline and Bob Roberts is the man assessing them for the state. He heads the Coastal Engineering Division for the Department of Natural Resources. And I met him on top of a levee in Donaldsonville, a small town on the Mississippi where both the demise of the wetlands began, but also where they may be reborn. In 1904, the Mississippi was dammed off from the head of the Bayou Lafouche, a waterway that sits just a few hundred yards from this levee. The diversion cut off fresh water, nutrients, and sediment needed for the healthy survival of the estuary systems downstream on the Gulf of Mexico the area is experiencing the greatest rate of wetland loss. One plan calls for a break in the levee a few miles south of where we stand. Over time, this major diversion would create a new river and form a new delta. But Bob Roberts says time is running out. You know, what we're kind of finding out with that is uh, it, it's a long-term project. It's on the scale that we need, but in order to get it done, it's gonna, it would take approximately uh, 40 to 60 years for our channel to be capable of carrying the amount of water needed to build the delta and to build delta at a rate that will help offset the loss rate that's going on in the basins right now. And that, that's what our work is showing us. Instead of a grand rerouting of the Mississippi, Bob Roberts is considering a smaller diversion. The plan is to build a large pumping station and send more of the river's water over the levee and back into Bayou Lafouche, mimicking some of what nature did 100 years ago. He says it's a small but practical first step. It's not a land building project. It's uh, mainly a freshwater and nutrient project. We don't have the flow capacity within the bayou anymore to carry sediments long distance. But we can get the fresh water where we need it to literally keep salt water at bay and give the freshwater marsh a chance instead of converting to a saltwater marsh or converting to open water as a whole. 
The nutrients also help fertilize that marsh so that it stays healthy. But without sand and sediment, there's nothing for the water to replenish. No place to anchor the kinds of vegetation needed to dampen storm surges. That's where Cary St. Pei comes in. Most of these are endangered birds that are flying over our head. This see it's heavily used by birds for nesting. Cary St. Pei heads the Barataria Terrebonne National Estuary Program. He leads me across acres of marsh, carefully pointing out the well-camouflaged eggs of nesting birds, coyote tracks, and sprawling vegetation. A bevy of willets, least terns, and Wilson's plovers swirl overhead. With butterflies lazily floating among flowering bushes and plants, it's hard to imagine that two major hurricanes, Katrina and Rita, roared through here just several months ago. St. Pei and his partner, Dean Blanchard, take me to the top of an eight-foot-high ridge, a ridge that just five years ago didn't exist. In 1955, the imagery that we have shows that there was a ridge here, right where we're standing. Uh, that ridge and the marsh that was adjacent to it had uh, sunk, and this entire region, as we would stand here and look around in a panorama, it would be a, a view of absolute open water. And now we're here, and uh, as a result of beneficially using material that was dredged from the port, uh, we pump sediment here from a source uh, about uh, three and a half miles from here. And we've created this elevated ridge. And uh, to the south of this ridge, we're looking at just a large expanse, uh, about 750 acres of, uh, of wetland, grassed wetlands. Using a system of pipes and hydraulic pumps, the St. Pei team scooped up sediments from a dredging operation at nearby Port Fushan and piled them up where the old photos directed them. Then teams went in to plant a variety of grasses, shrubs, and trees, looking for species that can flourish in the harsh environment. We always get our picture with Dean next to this tree. That's how we, uh, we can uh, show it from year to year, how it's changed. But uh, this one actually had acorns on it. Uh, it was stressed pretty badly. It was uh, totally brown after Rita. But uh, you can see there's a lot of new growth. It's uh, doing quite well. It's going to come back. Acorns out here where there used to just be water. Yes. And now you have trees. Now we have trees. That's the whole idea. Building land out of open water. That's what we need to do in Louisiana on a large scale. Quickly. So you have a plan to take what you have modeled here and turn this into thousands of acres here in the, uh, in the Mississippi Delta area. How are you going to do this? Well, we would build a, a system of uh, hopefully permanent pipelines that would uh, radiate from the Mississippi River from, from places of deposition, from point bars. Uh, you would harvest sediments, use what you can from that site, and move to another site, allowing allowing the other spot in the river that you just harvested to, to repopulate or resettle sediments. We would look at the offshore sources. We're, as we're standing here, we are within a mile from the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, there are sediment or sand deposits in, in the Gulf of Mexico that we could use. And we would use that to build uh, our barrier islands, for example. There's a saying around here what Louisianans know how to do best, that is? 
Uh, well, we've certainly laid down a few pipelines in Louisiana. Um, and uh, of course, that's to transport uh, petroleum, largely. Um, and let me, let me just uh, point out that, uh, you know, when we initially brought this up, um, you know, we were told that we didn't, we, the technology to pump great distances really uh, didn't exist. And my response was, oh, gee, you know, we're pumping a, a substance of similar thickness and viscosity all over the United States, and we call that oil. Uh, certainly, we can pump uh, a, uh, a solution of muddy water to, you know, 40, 50 miles without any problems. There are folks who say, hey, wait a second, why not have Mother Nature do this, but help her a little bit by making uh, another diversion of the Mississippi, a grand diversion, a third diversion, which would start, which would slow the Mississippi down and the sediment would naturally come out into these areas and, and create these wetlands without this high-tech approach of, of, of having to build a big super pipeline or sets of pipelines. Well, there, there has been examinations of, uh, of, of, you know, major, uh, a new diversion from the Mississippi River. And uh, so far, the, uh, you know, the data that has come out of these, these studies and evaluations indicates that uh, it would take 60 years before, uh, you know, we start actually transporting sediments here. We clearly do not have 60 years. In the short term, uh, this pipeline thing is the only way that we can strategically build land exactly where we need it. It, it is the only way, unless someone can, can point to a, a, a something that we have not thought of, that no one has thought of, it is the only way that we can build land in the short term. If Kerry St. Pay is right, and he has hard ground to prove his point, it could be possible to pipe in enough sediment to make a major difference on the Louisiana coast. But it will be an uphill battle. With global warming, sea levels are projected to rise faster than they have in recent years, and the rate of increase may be dramatic. Again, Ivor Van Heerden of the LSU Hurricane Center. Louisiana's been subsiding since time began. So sea levels been rising for a long, long time. We've always managed to deal with it. We just got to get smart. We got to recognize that if we build the right levee systems, get the wetlands uh, healthy and get them starting to progress again uh, and rebuild the barrier islands, that we can come up with a system that, like the Dutch, could give us 1 in 10,000 year protection. The other important thing is New Orleans is the testing ground for the rest of coastal, coastal United States. You know, as sea level rise, it's not going to be just New Orleans that's going to have a problem. It's going to be Tampa, Long Island, maybe parts of New York. Houston, Galveston, uh, Port Arthur, Texas, all these areas that could, uh, in due course, have to build their own levee systems. From what you understand, what's necessary to put a system in uh, the Gulf Coast region around New Orleans that would provide as much protection as the Dutch 10,000-year system? All it requires is the willpower to do. The United States is a very, very rich country. We're talking about to give all of coastal Louisiana their so-called Category 5 protection and rebuild all the wetlands and the barrier islands so we keep the productive fishery going, we keep the oil and gas infrastructure safe, we're talking about $30 billion. Katrina was a $300 billion disaster. So, you know, it's almost uh, just a few cents on the dollar, really, 
to get the, the protection we need. Now, some people say that um, over the long haul, people need to think about um, giving uh, much of the south coast of Louisiana back to the ocean, retreating in from where people are now today. What kind of sense does that make to you, if any? Well, the, pl the plan I was outlining does require some retreat from the coast because right now if you look at coastal Louisiana and, and imagine you spread your fingers of your hand in front of you, our levee systems kind of run along the outside of your fingers. And between each finger you have a V and that's basically a funnel that the surge can funnel up when we get a big storm. So really what we need to do in terms of that finger is to, is to cut it off at the knuckles and have one line of levees. Uh, it's much shorter in the long run, but it runs across the central part of the coastal zone. Those areas that are outside, you have to compensate the people and give them locations inside the protected system. How many people right now live outside the protected uh, system you're talking about? It probably amounts to maybe 100,000 at the most. The bottom line in all of this is, as you plan, is it has to be a case of not what's good for me, but what's good for the most folk. What's good for everybody? What makes the best sense for the overall population in coastal Louisiana? In the months and years ahead, that will be the central question Louisianans and the rest of the nation must grapple with and the merits of the civil and social engineering plans to protect New Orleans and its surrounding coastline will be hotly debated. This question about coastal protection has been going on for decades, at local, state, and federal levels, with many proposals but not much action to address future storms. But Katrina and Rita brought one unwelcomed answer for civil engineers and politicians alike. To do nothing, to reach no consensus, to make no decision, is in fact a decision, one that will continue to leave the region vulnerable to the ferocious storms that push in from the Gulf of Mexico. When it rains five days and the skies turn dark at night. When it rains five days and the skies turn dark at night. Then trouble taking place in the lowlands at night. Our program is produced by the World Media Foundation at the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts. Chris Ballman produced and Eileen Belinsky and Ingrid Lobet edited our Gulf Coast special. Our researcher is Emily Taylor and our technical director is Dennis Foley. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. When it thunders and lightning and the wind begins to blow There's thousands of people ain't got no place to go Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies, Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, 
and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. This is NPR, National Public Radio.